0: This is an ABC podcast.
1: Hilary Harper here for Life Matters. Hello. When it comes to managing environments outside our cities, there's increasing understanding of the importance of centering First Nations practices, not just running cultural tours after a development has happened. But in built environments, caring for country might look different. Today from Nam on the lands of the Kulin Nation, you'll hear about some innovative, country-centered design projects that listen and learn from Indigenous practitioners. What does caring for country look like when designing new city buildings and infrastructure projects? My guests today are already making that happen. Their projects include everything from visitor centres at national parks to medical clinics in regional towns, international airports, and major new urban centres. Let's meet them. Dylan Combermery is a Yugambeh man from the Gold Coast. He's had 25 years of experience in architectural practice. He's now Principal Architect with the Government Architect New South Wales and the author of the draft Connecting with Country Framework for New South Wales. Dylan, welcome to Life Matters. Morning. Great to have you here. Our guests as well, Dr. Danielle Hromek is a saltwater woman of the Buduwang tribe of the Yuin Nation. She's had decades of experience as a cultural designer and researcher, the founder of Indigenous design consultancy, Jinjama, and she's a professor of practice at the University of Sydney. She also consulted on the draft Connecting with Country framework. Danielle, fantastic to have you with us today.
2: Walamani well, Jindawan.
1: Thank you. And Ellie Davidson is a Balangara woman from the East Kimberley and also a descendant of Captain William Bly. So she's thought a lot about making culturally safe spaces and projects in her work as a town planner and planning lecturer at the University of Sydney. Ellie, great to have you with us too. Good morning. Now, Dylan Combermery, a lot of people might associate caring for country with places outside cities. At the moment, how much focus do architects and planners generally have on caring for country in built environments?
3: Uh, It's growing momentum, it's still, it's in its fairly uh, early stages Um, You know, historically connecting with country or Aboriginal culture and heritage has been largely done through archaeological investigations and recording what's found Um, However, responding to country in planning and design uh, is a relatively new idea
1: And I've noticed the Environmental Planning and Assessment Act in New South Wales requires planners to protect and maintain heritage, including Aboriginal culture and heritage. That idea of heritage is interesting, isn't it? Because it has that sense of preserving the past rather than asking how you might entrench caring for country in the future. Can you tell us a little bit about whether and how caring for country is different to that heritage idea?
3: Uh, That's a big one. Um, From a First Nations perspective, um, time is fluid. And so we are connected to our past, present and future. And so heritage for us isn't just always looking back. It's important to know where we've come from. um, But we need to um, also take that with us uh, into the now and into the future.
1: So it's about thinking differently about time in a sense. Is that right?
3: Uh, time, yes, um, but our connections as well, our connections with um, our mob, uh, with our relationships with other living entities uh, and all things that we consider as being part of country with a capital C. Uh,
1: Dr Danielle Hromech, I understand that it's your definition of uh, country in the report, the draft connecting the country framework. Could you explain uh, a bit more about what country means to Indigenous people, uh, especially in a design context?
2: Yeah, of course. I mean, country is um, not just what you can see, not just the tangible, but it's also the intangible. And I think that's often what people don't understand, that intangible element. It's what you can't see, even what you don't know. Um, it's it's everything in the environment, but much, much more. It's also everything that... Uh, includes the knowledge about how to care for that in, that space or that environment or that place um of course it's the land the water and the air but then it's also all of our ancestors who still care for and inhi- inhabit those spaces as well through life forces if you want to understand it like that and um and of course it's uh, deep knowledge that's associated with Um, those ways of uh, understanding the world about caring for that place. So it's, it's a lot more than just land, water and air.
1: I saw a great graphic on your website, the Jinjama website, with uh, a kind of three element circle with the physical and the human and the sacred, these interrelated worlds. I mean, that's a a really huge idea to get your head around for people who aren't used to thinking about country in that way. If you're using that concept, what does a country centred approach look like if you're embarking on a design project?
2: Yeah, well, it is a huge concept because it's a really big move away from how we currently work in not just in design and and urban um, spaces and um, architecture, but across the board, across all of our lives. It's actually decentering the human. So in a way, country-centred design stands in opposition to human-centred design, um, and we're you know um, including human beings as part of an environment, but not the the most important part of an environment. Everything in country-centred design um, has a quality. And that might be everything from, you know, the rights of an ant to be in a place and have access to place all the way through to rains and wind and um, a mountain and how you understand all of those relationships, the interconnectedness between all of those is actually um, what country centre design comes comes down to in a lot of ways. Yeah,
1: Dylan Mary. the report says that when we're building in urban environments, instead of putting people at the centre, we should put the needs of country at the centre. And that, that gave me poor. I had to kind of stop and go, what does that mean if if it's a space that people will be using? But there was a really useful graphic where there's on one side the pyramid with the humans at the top and everything Mm. else underneath. What's on the other side? What's what's the better approach in your view?
3: Well, I think uh, Danielle has articulated it beautifully is that you know, we need to think, I mean, we're getting there. We're thinking about sustainable design practices and um, how the environment is really important for us and um, how we in turn can help um, sustain those environments. So we're, we're getting there, but the shift has to come from us being at the top of the, the triangle, as you put it, and as, as is illustrated in the document, to being actually a part of a system um, so that, that is a challenge. Uh, I think some of us are starting to get our heads around it and it will be a momentum built up over time.
1: Dylan, could you tell us a bit about the planning and design process for the Casino Aboriginal Medical Service? Because that sounds like it allowed for a kind of multi-sensory experience of country. Mm. What happened there?
3: So the architect there was First Nations um, architect, Kevin O'Brien. Um, and I think he did a terrific job. Collaborating with um, the local Aboriginal community, thinking about how materials from country, so the, bri- the bricks were made from from the soil or the or the the location in which the medical centre is built, and that idea of building from materials um, that belong to country, and associating those materials with the places that you're making, so therefore connecting the design of those. Um, buildings with place is a really important idea. Uh, And then as you said, it's a multi-sensory experience, uh, the medical center in that um, there's a courtyard that has landscaping. So the smells of country um, connect you. And uh, also this idea that Danielle pointed out that country is more than the land. So it's uh, water and sky realms. And so the building opens up to the sky, so that you're actually physically connecting, even though you're inside a building, to all of those realms. And there's uh, there's also you know a whole lot of other ideas about how a medical centre is actually like a social hub, um, where you know you're you're encouraging people to look after their health with with sort of it, 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 without it being too institutionalised.
1: I loved also the example of the Koorie Heritage Trust in Melbourne, which is next to the Yarra, but in the original design faced away from the Yarra. How was that reassessed?
3: Well, I think there's, uh, you know, there's a, there's a sense of um, kind of, um, you know, reflection that goes on um, within the design of um, that First Nations designers go through, that—that that is very much uh, reflecting upon, not only our own um, sense of being, but our relationship, as again, Danielle had said, with not only um, ourselves, but with other cultures that are present. And I think that's a really important thing that we, Australia Post Contact has, has a shared history. Um, each of us, yes, have our unique connections to deep time culture, but we also have and acknowledge, certainly within the Aboriginal community, our relationships with other cultures.
1: We're speaking with Dylan combo a Yugamber man from Queensland's Gold Coast and Principal Architect with the Government Architect in New South Wales. And also with us today are Dr Danielle Horomek, who's a saltwater woman of the Budawang tribe of the UN Nation, cultural designer and researcher, and founder of Indigenous design consultancy Jinjama, among many other job titles. And Ellie Davidson, who's a Balangara woman from the East Kimberley and descendant of the cap- of Captain William Bly as well. She's a town planner and planning lecturer at the University of Sydney. Danielle, what One of your major projects uh, is working on a new set of precincts called Aerotropolis on Darug country in Western Sydney on the Wainamatta water system. Can you talk us through some of the things that you took into account for that project?
2: Yeah, what a huge um, project. And Ellie is working on this as well so I'm sure she'll have things to share. Um, It's it's in a, a piece of, a part of the world that in many ways got stopped in time being held in um, uh, land that was farmed or for agricultural purposes. So it's gone through uh, some moments where it's been held as a, as what it was before and has that memory of it, but also it's been severely impacted as well by the uh, agriculture. It's um it's actually Kwayana matter is the, the local name. Um, and I spent a long time speaking with Dara elders who I'm – related to many Darug, um people, about what this place means to them, not only elders but knowledge holders as well, and understanding it from their perspective. And it cre- created a fight in me for this place in a way that I can't describe and um, a, a desire to really do the best I can for this country while knowing that there were massive changes coming and knowing that um, I wouldn't be able to do everything I, I would um, love to be able to do for this place but, but dreaming that that anything I do can make a difference. It's uh, Wianamatta means um, place, mother place, or it's and Mata Wayana is mother, and Mata is a water place. So it's a, a place of um, mother motherhood.
1: And it, it sounded like the government was hoping that the design would also be have sustainability in mind in terms of water management and and flooding management. Yeah. Is that something that was compatible with your approach that centred country?
2: Well, I mean, ish. <laughs> definitely <laughs> sustainability is heading in the right direction. Um, I think we're not there yet with sustainability. I think we've got a long way to go. I think we've started from a Western worldview about sustainability and can we change that into a, a more holistic worldview? Perhaps maybe we'll be heading in the direction I'd like to see. Um, but in terms of water management, um, there's a lot of thinking going along going. Um, it, On in there, and I there's part of me that's like, why do we need to keep building on floodplains anyway? Um, But and how do we do that better if we are going to do it? Um, And I'm not sure if I have the answer yet, but this is sort of the big question in some ways.
1: If we have to build on a floodplain, how do we do that so that it's going to work for everyone? Yeah, Ellie Davidson, you've also uh, mentioned in some of your presentations about the Eritropolis as an example of planning that takes a care for country approach. And I know you focus a lot on providing cultural safety. Could you explain briefly for us what you mean by that?
4: Yeah, sure. Um, I think that, you know, in the past and in our existence at the moment, a lot of our Uh, places and spaces are really dominated by colonial messages and thinking and behaviours and I feel as though uh, in working with mob quite closely um, that that is uh, something that gets raised a lot is that they don't necessarily feel seen or heard or represented uh, in our public spaces. So I think that um, as part of Uh, what is kind of coming out of this connecting with country framework and the work of um, Dylan and Danielle. We're really thinking about how to create places that are more responsive to country, community and culture. And uh, I think it's something that we probably haven't thought about so much uh, up until this point. We don't necessarily question the names of places or the messages that we see, or the the people that are represented in our most public places. And we haven't really um, thought about the impact that that has on a people that have had, um, you know, their rights of sovereignty stripped away from them and their ability to actually, um, you know, care for country, which is a cultural obligation of our people for for the land that they're connected to. So I think that, a really great kind of um, process that is is unfolding is that as we really think about a a different way of approaching design and approaching planning, Uh, a result of that is going to be that Aboriginal people and First Nations people are going to uh, feel more uh, represented and therefore more safe in our public places.
1: I watched one of your presentations and you you did this quite powerful thought experiment where you asked people to imagine a place that was dear to them growing up. Tell me what comes next in that that, uh, idea.
4: Yeah, I think that sometimes it's really difficult for individuals to place themselves in an experience of what it might feel like for First Nations people to see the destruction of important places and valuable places that have m- meant something for um, generations um, before and generations ahead. You know, I think the the, the decisions that we make now are um probably not really thinking to our future and the importance of, um, you know, really enhancing and protecting places of value. So um, yeah, in my TEDx, I, I sort of got people to think about a place that was really important to them growing up and to think about returning to that place with their children um, to only find, you know, a car park or some form of development and um, that place entirely destroyed. And I think, um, you know, the intent of that exercise is to get people thinking about, you know, Um, us just, you know, changing the course of a waterway or, um, you know, destroying a a place of significance or moving, um, you know, uh, places that are really sacred to people and building on top of them um, cause a lot of grief and intergenerational trauma that um, people don't necessarily consider uh, in this process of development. So I really, I suppose, attempted to personalise that experience for people and to think about the cumulative impact of uh, what is happening on country and particularly in places like Western Sydney where there's a lot of change happening. So yeah, I suppose just trying to place people um, as individuals in that process and get them thinking about, um, you know, what's happening out here and the, um, I suppose, trauma that exists for people who are connected to this country.
1: Yeah, and the idea that moving through a a built space might not be a neutral experience, might be a a kind of continuously damaging experience for people. It was a really powerful process. Uh, Ellie, you also cited an example of projects that do put care for country at the centre and create that sense of cultural safety. Can you tell us a bit about Yagan Square on Noongar Noongar country in Perth?
4: Yeah, I suppose um, for me, it was a really interesting experience going there for the first time. I... I went there before I knew the kind of design process that led to that outcome. And uh, I I felt really different uh, in that place. And then I had the privilege of um, connecting with some of the people involved in that process and have since understood the really close connection um, that the government had um, and partnership that they had um, with the Wajak Noongar people in, in creating that place. And I suppose what's really interesting about it is that, um, you know, what, what is happening and what has happened is that we're importing these ideas of what a place should look and feel like. And generally they come from, um, you know, overseas countries and cultures. And I suppose that Yeagan Square for me was one of those experiences where I could see uh, the layers, um, you know, they, they maybe weren't visible until you started doing a bit of research, but I found myself um, really experiencing that place differently and, you know, there was pathways that moved through that site that replicate movement on country and the playscape that that young children would be engaging with up actually replicates um, landforms on Noongar country and so there's all of these layers I suppose of interpretation and um, you know culture that have come into that built environment and I think that um, you know those are the types of examples that we really need to be looking to um, that are First Nations led and there is a really strong partnership with um, the people from that country to I suppose encourage a way of engaging with country that is reflective of place
1: we're speaking with Ellie Davidson, Dr. Danielle Cromack and Dylan Combery about centering country in in design and architecture in our built environments not just uh, in places outside cities. And Dylan, Ellie and Danielle have both talked about this process of listening to people who are connected to a particular country and and reading the country. Currently architects and planners do what's called a technical site analysis. How might that look different if it was done with caring for country in mind?
3: I might jump in on this one. I yeah, mean, we right. all talk, <laughs> we, the three of us all talk about how important it is to walk country with, um, you know, traditional custodians and knowledge holders. I mean, that process that that humans need to undertake to understand through spatial design experience, uh, a learning process. So, the brain actually functions in a way that it interprets spatial information, dynamically uh, through the vestibular system. And it sends that information to the front of the brain where problem solving occurs. And and it, it also is where um, memory is retained. So this process of walking country is really important, particularly respecting um, traditional custodians. Uh, and it's more than the site analysis Sight is related to sitting and seeing. Uh, It doesn't involve all the sensors and analysis is the unpacking of a complex uh, uh, problem into smaller bite-sized pieces that are often really difficult to put back together. So we can't do this through looking at maps, we can't do this through the data, um, you know, that we often collect. We, as we're proposing, need to walk, physically walk country and respectfully with um, traditional custodians and knowledge holders.
1: And Danielle, your design work is guided by the values of elders in your community and you cite Elder Greg Sims as well as the values of your Mm -hmm. grandmother, Gloria. Can you tell us about those and how they inform your work?
2: Uh, Yeah, it was a real honour in my PhD to be able to speak with elders about, um, while I was doing my PhD, about how they understand country, how they uh, relate to country, how they um, move on country and it was, um, in a way, I, I got in there and at the right time that they were able to speak to me about these things. And my grandmother um, said to me that, gave me instruction, not only as, a, as an adult, but I, I realised all the way through my childhood about this without realising that's what she was doing, um, and it's only as an adult that I understand it. But what they, what, essentially what they all said was country is everywhere, It's in the urban environment as much as it is in the countryside. They said, um, your ancestors still walk this land, connect with them, and um, they will guide you. Now, um, they also said uh, that it's important to love every part of country and to care for every part of country, not just the big things, but the small things, And, and to see all of country is as an uh, with equality. I'm putting words into how they described it, but it is it was an incredibly beautiful experience to go through with them and ask them these questions, and get guidance from them about how to do this, and then to be able to bring that into a design process. And that's that was the PhD really is how do I do this as a designer? Um, how do I um, follow their guidance in a design process? And uh, it's that that was the um, in a way, that's been the the gift of my um, PhD to to me and my practice, but hopefully those who are, who we then work with as well.
1: I know Ellie Davidson has to leave us now. She has another commitment, so a big thank you to you, Ellie. Thanks for joining us on Life Matters today.
4: Thank you very much for having me. Pleasure. Yeah.
1: Uh, Balangara woman from the East Kimberley and descendant of Captain William Bly town planner and planning lecturer at the University of Sydney and you can find her TEDx talk online really interesting listen Dylan Combermery just in our last minute or so now that this draft report is out there what are the next steps what would you like to see happen?
3: Uh, well we need to socialise the, the the work uh, more broadly across uh, New South Wales um, We've been largely working with Sydney um, Aboriginal communities, uh, and partly because of the COVID shutdown, we haven't been able to get out uh, to the regional communities. Um, but we it, we really want this to be a voice of Aboriginal community, uh, representing them and, and and their leadership, in how do we design with country? Um, so we're we're heading out very shortly and hopefully um, with their feedback we'll finalise the framework by early 2023.
1: It would be a really interesting space to watch. Dylan Combermery, Dr Danielle Hromek, thank you so much for joining us on Life Matters today.
3: Thank you. Thanks for having
1: us. Dylan Combermere, a Yugambeh man from the Gold Coast, he's principal architect with the Government Architect of New South Wales. Dr. Danielle Hromack is a saltwater woman of the Budawang tribe of the Yuin Nation. She's a professor of practice at the University of Sydney, a cultural designer and researcher, and the founder of Indigenous Design Consultancy Jinjama. And you heard earlier from Ellie Davidson too, and they are all involved in the Festival of Urbanism in Sydney. It's happening in late September. There'll be a link to those events on the life matters page dylan and danielle worked on the new south wales government's draft connecting with country framework which has some really interesting ideas in it for how things might be different you're listening to life matters on rn precious objects can tear families apart or they can bring them together across vast distances of space and time a lovely story about a very old medal up next
3: We all do it. It's one of the basic skills we learn as kids that colour and shape our world. But it's not all rainbows, stick figures and beaming suns. Drawing is also a life skill. And on The Art Show, I want you to join me and the artist, Lily-Mae Martin, as we try to recover the lost art, including tricks and hacks like how to master illusion and capture perspective. The Drawing Board on The Art Show with me, Daniel Browning, Wednesday morning at 10 or anytime on the ABC Listen app.
1: Precious objects, handed down from generation to generation, can have mysterious origins and solving those mysteries can renew interest in family history. Margot Firth is the keeper of an OBE medal. It was awarded to her mother's grandmother, Margot's great-grandmother. Here's her story for Life in 500 Words.
5: Not too many years ago, my mother received an unexpected gift from her sister, It was their grandmother's OBE medal and certificate bestowed upon her by His Royal Highness, King George V, in 1920. The stranger thing than having an officer of the Order of the British Empire in the family and not knowing why and what this grandmother had done to deserve such an honour was that the sister's gift had accompanied her halfway around the world, hidden and almost forgotten about in the bottom of her tiny suitcase for many years. You see, this sister belonged to a religious order of nuns. Her faith had taken her from a teaching life in Sydney in the 1950s onto the island of Bougainville, then Africa, where she escaped the tyrannical hands of Idi Amin by walking for three months with her students out of Uganda, almost circumnavigating Lake Victoria into Tanzania to safety. And finally to Melbourne, and spending her remaining working days assisting African refugees, all the while keeping safe the precious gift from her grandmother. Being a nun, she had very little in the way of worldly possessions. A holy Bible, a few clothes, a gift of a precious shell from a thankful student. So when it finally came into my mother's hands, the family was still none the wiser about this honour. They knew that Granny had been instrumental in the formation of the Far North Queensland Country Women's Association back in 1923, and had continued to devote many hours to its service, right up to her death in 1953. But the dates were all wrong. The certificate referenced her services to the Red Cross, 1920. No one in her family knew what this meant. And so the medal and certificate along with her photo were framed with a letter of lifelong membership to the Queensland Country Women's Association, proudly on display for all to see and read when they entered the home with a question mark hanging over its head. Now years later, research has shown that great granny Ethel Crowber OBE was indeed instrumental in the formative years of the Red Cross in 1915 her eldest son had enlisted and was serving in the Dardanelles and North Africa. The mood at home was one of service to support these troops. The war would surely be over by Christmas. Ethel Crowther OBE did more than gather wives and family together to knit balaclavas. With the red Cross, she became the convener of the receiving and distributing subcommittee for the duration of the war. This entailed being responsible for receiving annually over 200,000 goods from all across Queensland, sorting, repairing, and making fit for purpose, then distributing them to the troops in Europe and Africa. Working with a loyal committee, they sent necessary goods such as clothing, food, medical supplies, nurses' uniforms, cane chairs, bed linen, cricket sets, gramophones, records, and carpenters' tools. Who would have thought, indeed, a precious gift?
1: Margot Firth with the story of her precious object, an OBE medal belonging to her great-grandmother and what it taught her about achievements of her family. That was produced by Michelle Weeks. Now, if you'd like to send in your own story about an object that's precious to you and why, that would be excellent. Head to our website, find the Life in 500 Words picture, it's right down the bottom, and see all the details of how to record it into your smartphone and send it to us. Our email is lifematters at abc.net.au. Just pop precious objects in the subject line. Now, ageing is weird. Your head says you're middle-aged, your heart says you're in your mid-twenties, and social pressure has things to say about how you should look and act. Some ways to navigate that, next on Life Matters on RN. New from ABC Books. I didn't learn a lot in school, not in the classroom anyway. We've lost an inspiring First Nations elder,
0: but his extraordinary story is shared in the wonder of little things, of finding kindness amidst prejudice, and joy in living life to the full. Philip Adams says this book is destined to become a classic.
5: I hope you enjoy my story.
0: The Wonder of Little Things
2: by Vince Copley. Book and audiobook narrated by Greg Fryer. Available in bookstores and online
1: the schism between how we appear on the outside and how we feel on the inside can really hit home <clears throat> Excuse me, as we age. It's happening right now. <laughs> and there are particular aspects to that if you're a woman. For broadcaster and author Jacinta Parsons that revelation came in a series of moments which helped her revise her perceptions of ageing in an attempt to move happily into the next stage of life. And her, her thoughts and explorations are contained in a new book, A Question of Age, Women ageing and the forever self. Jacinta Parsons, welcome to the Matters. Hello,
0: Hillary Harper.
1: We well, go way back on local radio. I should act a little less it. excited. Uh, <laughs> but I'm yeah. very excited oh. to see you as a fan Ooh. of the show. Thank Good. you. Well, I'm excited to talk about this because, obviously, this is something a lot of people go through, <coughs> me, and there are some funny moments and some heartbreaking moments in the book, and sometimes they're the same moment. Tell us about, you're in a bar, you're chatting away <laughs> to someone, you're having a whale of a time, and then a moment happens. So, You know, that great moment when you've just, you know, you're
0: you're having a great time. You meet someone you don't know, but you are like, we are kin. We know each other. This is beautiful. We have this understanding of the world. This woman and I, as you say, whale of a time, and then she turns to me and she said, oh, my goodness, I wish you were my mum.
1: <laughs> Little knife in the heart.
0: <laughs> Which was a lovely. I mean, I, everyone wants to be, you know, someone's chosen mother, perhaps. Yeah. But I didn't think that um, I was being perceived that way until she alerted me. So, you know, I was like, I'd love to. (laughs) But really internally recognising that I had perhaps changed externally in a way that I wasn't aware of. And so, you know, these moments that we all kind of encounter where we find out that actually we're perceived to be older than we are.
1: Yeah, and when you are a mum... Yeah, that there's a difference between what's going on outside. Can I tell you about the time I went dancing recently? Please. I was out dancing for the first time in many, many, many years, and my head was going, this is just wrong. Why are you here? All these people are younger. Go home. And my body was like, it's okay. We've, <laughs> We've got, got this. this. <laughs> yeah. This is fine. These moves, yeah. they're natural. But there's a lot of self-talk going yeah. on, isn't there? And you're really honest about that in there. I, I also love the physical moments of confrontation. Tell me about the arms. Yeah, look, this...
0: And this is, you know, this is really revealing some of this internal talk because it's like that internalised ageism or or anything that we have. I don't actually agree with it. But when my, um, I know when we were young, we used to call a particular body part on a women's body, a tuck shop arm. So the tuck shop ladies had those wobbly bits on the underside of their arms. um, And so, you know, it was just a term, tuck shop lady arms.
1: Yeah, we had bingo wings. Equally appalling.
0: (laughs) Or bat wings, if you go looking. Um, And so I, you know, was waving to someone, you know, a couple of years ago, and I realised that my arms had transformed into the ones that I used to find quite funny, the tuck shop lady arm. And it was a moment of, again, oh my goodness, the body is changing. Uh, There was also a moment of like, I felt like I was in a cool club. But also, you know, just these, they seem very superficial and they are, but they speak to us about a very, a much deeper cultural experience of how we are taught to um, experience age and think of it. And then we embody those ideas in ways that if we haven't
1: challenged it, we, we feel shame. Well, and how confronting was that for you in particular? Because you write about, you know, basically being taught that it's okay to mock older women's bodies. Now that you're in an older woman's body, how did that feel? Well, I think that's part of –
0: in terms of writing this book, it was about trying to locate rage. Why is it so – why is there so much rage that's described by women of a particular age, you know, hitting from midlife into and beyond? And I think that's part of it. It's just the revelation of how did I, as a young girl – And as a young woman gets sucked into the way that we have been conditioned to think of older women, you know, it's a punchline. Menopause is a punchline. The body is a punchline. And we are absolutely pressured to hide our bodies when we age, the wrinkles, the flappy arms. And you just sort of stop and think,
1: hang, why are we doing that? Well, that's the thing. Did you come to any conclusions about where these negative attitudes get entrenched? Because, I mean, there's, I guess you have to kind of really go back to your childhood, don't you, in those first times when people's attitudes became clear towards older people in our society?
0: I think that is what um, I really uncovered in writing this book, that it began as talking about the incident in the bar and expecting that I would kind of rotate around there. But I really tried to find out the source of the experience as a woman And understanding myself is not compartmentalised into different ages. And now I'm an older woman and I was once a younger woman. I am a younger woman still inside me. So going back to that younger woman and understanding that walking the streets and having catcalling and acknowledging the objectification of my body from the day it emerged on the earth pretty much has absolutely influenced how I objectify myself, others and myself as an ageing body. So it's not separate. And to kind of have an understanding of that continuum, I think has really shifted how much I've bought into it.
1: Yep, Lizzie on Facebook, on our Facebook page says I'm just a teenager with life experience There are a lot of people who this really resonated for This idea about the inner versus the outer yeah. And how society encourages us, us to see them as completely different But let's spend a little bit more time on that that idea about being looked at And being objectified as a body, a body. Uh, Because you write really honestly about what the male gaze has meant for you The male gaze in particular, but it's a whole of society thing From quite a young age Tell us about when you first caught Locked, that things were different because your body had changed
0: it's and I, it's an interesting thing and it's an interesting thing to reflect on I think for anybody I, I'm coming from a you know cis female perspective but of course there are so many experiences of this but mine was as a young girl realizing that my body, could be desired, and I realise that through catcalling and or even having it looked at, um, and you know that's predominant. I, I think th- what's really fascinating here as well is it's not necessarily you know the male gaze in adverted commas is not just done by men. It's done by yourself.
1: It's done. It's it's built within a system as to how you refer to your body. So, comments about you know yeah. why are you wearing that and what are you doing with your hair and why isn't are you that a wearing that. Flesh?
0: so there was there is so much policing of uh the the woman body in terms and the young woman's body in terms of what they are allowed to do with it how sexualized it can be what purpose and agenda do you have with that body is very much, you know, we talk about victim blaming, but that's pretty much what it is, is that you're the agent of this and you probably have nefarious ideas about what you want to do with it or overly sexualized ideas. And so we are taught from a very young age that that external view of us is who we are and we change and we mould and we participate in the world to either be liked by that... Or to um, find our way free of that, but for me it was oh okay validation. This is this is who I need to be in the world because this is the power structure. Yeah, it's a really complicated thing, isn't it? Yes,
1: you write about that yearning to be seen and noticed and valued, and that was the value that was being attached at the time. But then it's fascinating when you move through the stages of life, you know, dealing with the catcalls and harassment, which are annoying and awful. And then moving to this stage of life where you could go to the shops in your pyjamas and no one would notice. What's that like when you realise that the, the gaze has shifted? I think that
0: that is the, a really imp- interesting moment of revelation around the game that we have um, participated in or been subjected to is when, you know, women will describe becoming invisible in this mid, mid-age point or even not even mid-age. It's like basically outside of that fairly, you know, young woman um, image. Yeah, we're only just out of the 40 to 49 <laughs> drop-down box kicking. Hey, let's know. chill, everyone. <laughs> exactly. Um, but actually women in their 30s will describe this experience as well. So you've been conditioned to be, you know, whistled at and referred to and ogled or, offend. you know, there's abuse around the way you look. Sometimes, and then all though. of a sudden there is the silence of the street as you walk down. And that's when it occurs, I think, and it occurred to me, oh, wow, I bought into that. I actually saw my value through that because now that it's gone, even though I rolled my eyes as a good feminist and said, how dare you objectify me? I, You know, I'm not buying into it. Of course there's a deeper conditioning going on. So when that invisibility takes place and you are not noticed in ways that you haven't wanted to be but it becomes apparent that we were
1: useful for one thing. We are speaking with Jacinta Parsons, who is a broadcaster and author. Her second book is called A Question of Age, Women, Aging and the Forever Self. And we asked on our Facebook page at ABCRN, how you deal with this as an individual? How do you reconcile what the outside world says you should be doing or looking like and what you're feeling like on the inside? And people had some really interesting responses. And uh, yeah, someone's texted in saying, I'm 53. I'm desperate to go dancing. <laughs> Jane says, I'm the same age as Nick Cave." late 60s he's forever cool and desirable i'm i am seen as neither i'm invisible even though i think i look cool that's interesting isn't it because uh, is there a temptation to go well i'm going to see older women's bodies as beautiful i'm going to embrace that power and strength do I then have to deal with being objectified into my 80s? In terms
0: of, I guess it's it's about, um, I think the purpose of um, this kind of exploration for myself was to understand the rules of the game that we've been playing in. And then it's about empowering choices around that. And that, that can be so many things. It can be um, adjusting your body to make it feel like it reflects something. You know, it can be that stuff. But I, I feel on a personal level for me, my message to the younger women in my life is that this body is not something to be ashamed of as it moves and grows and changes. This body, it's certainly not about love my body. It's not that simple. It's about saying there is a power, there is perfection in this and I'm going to be proud of it on your behalf as much as anyone else's.
1: And you talk about this idea of the forever self, which is interesting because we think of the self sometimes as quite a finite little blob how did that idea take shape for you? What does that mean for you? It really was about going back to that young person that
0: walked to the shops, but then going back and looking at the witches and other ideas of the woman body, you know, or the woman. And I and I don't want to say body in any way um, exclusionary. This is the experience of coding as woman. Um, going back into time and realising that there is a connection of my experience in my humanity in this form with things that go all the way back. There is a foreverness to this. And I think reaching back and and touching into some of the women that I speak about and have written about has helped me understand where I sit on the continuum and that also I'm not separate selves. You know, you think of the the young girl again, talking about that five-year-old girl as someone else in a photo she is so still alive inside me. She ha- She's mutated, she's changed, she's evolved, but the essence is very much there. And I think connecting to that and not being convinced that we are separate from that young self, but that the old self is a beautiful um, evolution of that, I think is part of, for me, what has really been a shift in around the, the way I think about it.
1: Yep, the five-year-old still in there, the yeah. 16-year-old, the 23-year-old, yep. all the all the, uh, usses. But I love too how you write about your Nana Les. Yeah. So, you know, she had a long life and she really fit the mould in your writing of the, the older lady. You know, she went grey, she didn't behave outrageously, she dressed for her age, you know, so-called. But also in the nursing home when she developed dementia, she developed a whole new set of memories as a Racing car driver. Yeah, I've actually got it recorded. I was doing um, a philosophy subject at
0: university and I thought, what is reality as you do in philosophy at university and continue to do less obtusely later on in life? But, you know, I went and I recorded a conversation with her where she detailed to such accuracy her feelings, her experience, her competitive ambitions as a racing car driver. Like it was, and I'm, You know, because the story was so watertight, I'm like, was she actually possibly, (laughs) before we knew her, a racing car driver? But it was really interesting because sitting before me was the woman that I loved, a woman that I had known for a long time, but her memories of herself had shifted and gave her great delight being the racing car driver. And it really began the questioning around. What we hold in our bodies, the memories of ourself, the way we tell ourselves who we are, truly is the only experience that we have. You know, what is a memory? What is our past? Um, and, and trying to see it from the outside in, I think, can be problematic. So it's that feeling self, forgetting what it looks like on the outside and going back into the feelings of what it is rather than these um, memories, you know, that
1: have detail. Nana Les was really powerful for me because it made me think about my own grandmother and how in the 70s, when she decided she was old, she would have been in her, like late 50s, yes. early 60s. this is when you go back and look at the, yeah. Far out you were me when you were doing that. Yeah, she was wearing dresses that made her look like she was in the 30s or 40s. She's gone, this is what an older lady wears, so yes. I'm going to wear that. Do you think things have opened up a little bit since then, since we had to be Les going grey gracefully and, you know, wearing the, the appropriate clothes? Are things different in Australia now? Very much. I think we can um, uh, look already at the way that
0: we are describing age as 20 years younger probably than, and than our forebears were. Is that the right word? Hilary Harper. I think so. Yeah. Thank you. You know heaps more than I do. Um, so looking <laughs> back. It's actually very true. Uh, looking back and seeing that, um, you know, Nana Les, she played the role of the older person. And so we're still making that inquiry now. What is the role we're being asked to play? And do we want to play it? No, we don't actually. This idea of old and elderly doesn't fit really the interior self. So it was just interesting to look back and then actually do the maths on my nanales and go, you were wearing hats and gloves when you weren't much older than me. Beautifully, celebratorily, she, she enjoyed it but it was a real um, kind of eye-opener around the performance of age and we're not far off that experience. But check out 70s and 80s now. It's a, it's not hats and gloves,
1: let me tell you. Yeah, look up Ashton Applewhite, who you cite in there, anti-ageing campaigner. She is fantastic and her hair is excellent. Yeah. But I love how you, you've talked before about, you know, you were trying to work out why older women were so angry. You worked it out during the course of the book, didn't you? What conclusions did you find?
0: Look, I think that... Um what we've been told is that our rage is related to the hysteria of women which we've been told for a long time and I know we're pushing back against that but really it's deeply embedded in us that our cycles particularly our menstrual cycles and then going through perimenopause and menopause make us wicked uh, you know and it feels a little bit like that too (laughs) but but I think um, it's actually the rage that we feel is when you actually look back and when you feel the grief of the pain of our sisters who have been burnt and hurt and abused and the things that have happened within this structure that we live in. As we age, our women are the most, as we know, vulnerable cohort for homelessness. We have Indigenous women who are experiencing incarceration. You know, the list goes on and on and on. There is a good reason for the rage. And I think the rage can be a really productive, which we've been told for a long time through for, for millennia about the idea that your rage as a woman is actually nothing to be afraid of. Like this is to harness the fire. You know, this is to to bring the energy that we need in love to make shifts to who we can and should be
1: in our lives. Well, then people our age, people your age in particular, are raising young women yeah. of the future, also young men excellent children. And very importantly young men. Yeah, so I mean how has all this thinking that you've put into this book, A Question of Age, influenced the way you look at your 18 year old who's on that journey now of walking down the street and knowing herself to be watched in her body and your little guy who's yeah. growing up to, to work out where he fits in things too. I think that's where the exciting part of this is. First so we have young people
0: and it's generation after generation that the reflection is they're so much better than we were. They just are. They have a from some of the education and the knowledge that we have but they still have enormous challenge and you know my teenage 18 year old daughter said to me the other day just off mum I was walking around today and I just didn't want them to have me the same feeling of being owned by the look that you have when you walk around the street as a young woman is still there um, and, but what, what was really a revelation to me in writing it because I was like the younger generation and I got <laughs> tippy-tapping on my keyboard and I realized, no, 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 we must stop that. We must now um, in eldership going toward the um, idea of elders rather than older is to think, you know what, it's time for me to sit back a little bit and propel from behind to give encouragement to the younger generation around the way they're navigating the world. They're working it out with a better skill set. My job is to actually support and listen and learn about that as much as be a teacher, I think. I think that's the transformation that actually happened for me writing this book was, oh, my gig is not to be a know-it-all. It's actually to be a learner.
1: I want to read you a couple of quick texts. M on Facebook said, a top hat always looks fabulous and a tutu is never out of place. Hello. 62 years old. And uh, Kim in Coffs Harbour texted in to say, the French have a very different view of age and women do they, Kim? She goes on, it's more about putting your best self forward, no matter what your age. I love that I'm almost 60 and I'm still climbing trees and mountain bike riding. My favourite saying is your happiness looks beautiful on you. Now, if that's a French idea, I'm all for it. How do we say that in French? (laughs) No, I I can't go there. Yeah. But I want to quickly finish up Jacinta Parsons by asking, you know, at the start of your book, you're like, okay, I've got these split selves. How do I reconcile them? How has your self-talk changed through the course of this process?
0: Yeah, it's still there. For sure, you know the the things that I've been grown inside me, um, my internalized all the things, misogyny and ageism and all the stuff that we have. But this is just awakening to it, and just hoping to find a way to put a different narrative inside me as I move into this next bit, so that I'm, you know, let's enjoy this next bit. Let go of some of the stuff and make some real transformation, I hope, in the way that we think about age in our community.
1: Yeah. Letting go is so great, isn't it? This is what
0: you hear from older women. It's like, I don't care. I just don't care anymore. But getting to that space, um, I hope that we can find a way that we also make transformation as well in, in
1: amongst that. Yep, in the wider world Jacinta Parsons transforming things wherever she goes Oh yeah Lovely to chat to you today So nice to talk to you Thank you so much Hilary Harper The latest book is called A Question of Age Women, Aging and the Forever Self and you can find her other book Unseen too in the bookshops Uh, Jacinta Parsons local radio broadcaster on ABC Melbourne Nat Tenchich producer on Life Matters Hello
6: Hello So many thoughts on this one Uh, Really got a lot of uh, response on the Facebook page Uh, Julie said, I think I needed to listen to this story because I turned 65 and boom, there's an old lady looking back at me in the mirror. <laughs> Where did she come from? how did that happen? Uh, Jane said my wake-up moment was when I was in a shopping mall and I thought I saw my mother, only to realise it was my own reflection. Mirrors. God, I'm starting, like, sometimes I'm getting to that point. Uh, Sharon says I don't feel much differently most days. I'm still essentially me, except my knee's grown and my skin is weathering. I don't look at myself very often anymore, which is actually a relief. Uh, and does. said I'm deeply shallow and I hate my neck at the moment. I'm 62. What happened?
1: But apart from that, I am grateful for being active and in the best headspace of my life. Jacinda did a really interesting experiment. She stopped looking in a mirror for a week. And that was fascinating in the book.
6: How is that possible? I could not. (laughs) Barbara says, live as actively as you can. I no longer feel embarrassed about how I look, even on the beach. I
1: appreciate my friends and my family. Thank you, Nat. A lot of people had excellent things to say about growing older and how to deal with it. You can check out our Facebook page to see a whole discussion unfurling there. Next time on Life Matters, Beverly Wang will foray into a similarly exciting and rich territory, how we express love and how that might be different to how others express love. I think my love language is cleaning. It's how my family take care of each other. Aunties, pop over and clean your windows in times of crisis. But it can take many forms. I look forward to hearing more on that on our next episode here on RN.